This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. mRNA technology has been the key to the successes of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, raising hopes that it could hold a key to success for other vaccines. Like HIV, we'll look into the new tech and what changes there could be in the future. New polls shows millions of Americans feel they don't really have anybody they can trust. We'll talk about that. Just because you'll be able to go places without masks in California starting next week, Will people? There's an adjustment period for a lot of folks. The pandemic has led to people putting on weights. We'll go over how to shed those pounds. And if you're one of the super picky Starbucks customers, double pump kids temp upside down, extra whip, that kind of a thing. Well, uh, there is an ingredient shortage. We start with the mRNA vaccines and others fighting diseases. Dr. Abby Rudolph, professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at Temple University College of Public Health. She talked with KYW's Matt Leon about what we can expect from this technology coming up. Vaccine technologies that have used nucleic acids um, were first developed in the 1990s. And so nucleic acids can be either DNA or RNA. And so for a long time, there were a lot of issues around the feasibility of using RNA because it's pretty fragile. Um, So most of the technologies that were using nucleic acids for vaccine development relied on DNA. And so there were um, recent advances in both research and technology that basically um, eliminated a lot of these feasibility issues Um, with respect to the viability of using um, RNA technology and specifically mRNA technology that um, due to these improvements, um, they're now a promising alternative to the more conventional vaccines that you might have heard of. Um, One, they are more efficacious. You've seen in the randomized controlled trials that they have larger um, efficacy than other vaccines using the approaches that we um, maybe are you're more familiar with from the past. They're also really safe to administer. Uh, they don't use a live vaccine, so there's no risk um, or an attenuated vaccine. So there's no risk that you're going to become infected um, with the virus. Um, it's basically just a blueprint for developing a protein that trains the body on how to respond to a virus. Um, and then also they can be developed really rapidly. So Um, The way that they work is it's sort of like putting this blueprint inside a Trojan horse, and then the Trojan horse goes into the body and releases this blueprint. And so that Trojan horse or the vehicle that allows it to enter can basically be used for any virus or any, um, the encapsulation is, can be the same for whatever virus you're using it for. So this same technology and this same platform already existed um, they had been experimenting with it with um, other diseases, other infectious diseases like Ebola and HIV for many years. And so when it came around time to develop COVID-19, they basically took the technology that they already had been experimenting with, but might not have been successful for those diseases, um, and just inserted the genetic material for the protein that they wanted to combat for COVID-19. So um, it's really easy to just insert new genetic material into this existing um, sort of Trojan horse or encapsulated, you know, lipid particle. Um, And then they're also really easy to manufacture. Um, They're quicker, uh, less expensive. So in terms of global reach, um, you know, 
better better option in terms of uh, cost and production for low income countries as well as higher income countries. mRNA it had been it's been looked at when it comes to vaccine development for HIV. I mean, prior to the pandemic, it was something that's been looked at in possibility or or there might be something there. Yeah. So there's actually there's actually two lines of uh, two priorities for vaccine research in HIV. Um, So one is the preventative vaccine, which is, um, you know, prevent you from ever developing HIV. And then the other is to. Like I was saying, when you get HIV, you have to take antiretroviral therapy for the rest of your life. And so that can come with toxicity, that can come with side effects. And so the other option is a functional cure. So some sort of vaccine that you can, um, that can prevent this lifelong treatment regimen with antiretroviral therapy. And so mRNA technologies were pursued for both lines of research. um, And they... Um, most of the most, well, as you know, most of the vaccine research um, that has gone into HIV so far, although it developed promising results in early trials, um, didn't really reach levels of efficacy that um, resulted in anything that is rolled out in the population. Um, but there are some recent uh, recent more promising results that have been published on. There's two current um, mRNA-based uh, vaccine approaches that are being pursued in partnership with Moderna, which was one of the developers of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and they take two different approaches. Um, and they, they were in development before COVID-19, but um, more of the energy and resources were devoted towards COVID-19 over the last um, year and a half or so. Um, but so those are now sort of moving into the next stage of, of trials. Now, millions of people across the country struggling through life with not a lot of people they can trust. New AP NORC Center for Public Affairs Research Poll finds 18% of adults in the U.S. say they've got just one person or maybe even nobody that they can trust for help in their personal lives, emergency child care needs, even just simple ride to the airport. So is the pandemic making it worse? Dr. Mo Gelbarts, Director of Behavioral Health at Torrance Memorial Medical Center. Rob Archer and I asked why people are feeling this way. You know, I think there's a variety of reasons that uh, this is occurring, uh, and the pandemic certainly has increased it. But our present situation in society has increased it, too. I think, you know, when we talk about trust or or letting other people help, you know, that's a certain degree of uh, allowing ourselves to be vulnerable to others. And at this point in time, I believe in our, in this, you know, in our American society here, we just don't, we're afraid to, to, uh, to be hurt, we're afraid to be abandoned, we're afraid to open up to anyone, uh, we become sort of self-protected and isolated and live in these sort of silos. And, and, and as we all know, the pandemic has made things much worse, they've, you know, we've all those months that we stayed indoors and all we had to rely on was the people under our roof. And, uh, and, you know, and, and the last thing, that, that build, you know, this is a thing that's been building for many, many years, which is, you know, the core uh, inner family structure has oh, year after year or decade after decade been uh, unraveling somewhat, you know, versus what, what used to be perhaps, you know, 30, 40 years ago, you'd live with your, your, your parents, of course, and then your grandparents might live in the house and your aunt and uncle might be in the apartment next door. And so there was this big extended family. For the most part, that's gone. People are so 
mobile and, and, and changing all the time, that that core extended family is, is gone as well. Yeah, and it's coming at us from all sides, right? Because you hear trust and some people automatically think, okay, well, it's someone I can open up to or help me uh, talk about stuff, I can trust them. But also, we mentioned the real life stuff. You know, let's say I end up at urgent care or the hospital, who's going to pick me up uh, if I don't have anybody to pick me up? So either you're going to have an emotional toll or you're just going to give yourself a whole bunch of anxiety worried about well, what happens if I don't have anybody to help me. Correct. And and again, the, the, you know, you what you describe is, is really quite a, a, a sad situation and, and a very uh, costly situation emotionally. And what I, what I mean by that is, you know, research clearly shows that we, you know, we're, we're humans that are, need connectivity. And people live longer and they remain healthier when they have strong, close relationships in their life. And, uh, and you don't need a lot, by the way, but you do need that one or two or three that you can rely on. And so people who, who can't even have that and, you know, an ill person who can't find somebody that they can rely on, I don't know if that word is trust as much as re- reliance, to even pick them up at the hospital is, is a sad and isolated situation. And isolation leads to depression. It, the, that isolation and loneliness leads to deep depression, perhaps even you know, suicidal kinds of thoughts, and that's on the rise as well. You know, you talked about not just the pandemic, but but American society as well. And so that that sparked an idea in my head: is people less willing to trust others around them? Does this also affect society in general? And that we see the the it seems like conspiracy theories are more widespread now. Used to be, if an elected official came on and said, "Hey, look, we got a problem. You need to take a, you need to get a vaccine," but now you have people responding with, "Well, you're trying to inject me with some kind of tracking device." Uh, is, is this part of that, too, this lack of trust leads to a lack of trust in society in general? Absolutely, or perhaps society has created that lack of trust. I mean, chicken or the egg type thing, meaning, you know, we, we've, we've evolved into this incredible tribal society. We have, uh, you know, we live in this uh, two camps in everything. You know, we have Democrats and Republicans. Uh, white people and minority people. We have rich people and poor people. We have, uh, you know, the, the uh, I mean, just everything is divided and, and one side never trusts the other. And, you know, we have gun control people versus non-gun control people. And so we, we, we jump into our tribes, we put on our, you know, not literally, figuratively, our uniforms, and we're at battle all the time. And when you're at battle all the time, you're walking around on edge, and you don't know, since we're not really wearing uniforms, we don't know who we can trust and who we can't. And there's so many of these, when I say so many, there's at least a good half dozen of these controversial and important issues that when we, we don't know how to put our thoughts and feelings out because we don't know what the next person's going to say. And when there's a difference, unlike perhaps times in the past, when we differ, we differ incredibly angrily and aggressively. And, you know, and, and again, that's part of that mistrust. I, I, I can't open up to anyone because I don't know where they're coming from. And, and it's not like... You know, do you like hamburgers or do you like, you know, fish? It's it's if you're if you're on this side of the fence and I'm on that side of the fence, we don't trust each other at all. Dr. Mo Gelbart, director of behavioral health, Torrance Memorial Medical Center. Masks in this state that I'm in, California, after June 15th will not be needed for the fully vaccinated. Uh, will everybody start leaving their masks at home when they go to the movies or head out to shop? With us is Dr. George Rutherford, epidemiologist and director of the Division of Prevention and Public Health at UC San Francisco School of Medicine there. Rob and I asked if uh, he thinks there are going to be some people who keep those masks on still. Yeah, I think people will probably keep them on still a little while longer. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't plan to. And, you know, I'm... I'm not a spring chicken. 
I think that, you know, I, I think there are certain circumstances. You know, first of all, there are a handful of circumstances where you're required to have them on, right? So hospitals, you know, I'm a doctor. I work in hospitals. Hospitals, correctional facilities, nursing homes, K-12 through schools, homeless shelters, uh, public transportation. And, you know, and so that's, that's a kind of lineup, lineup. Plus, uh, in large indoor what the state's fond of calling mega events, things with uh, more than five thousand people, more than five thousand people indoors. So I guess that would that would be the the, the Clippers is the only, and then for us up here the in the convention centers too. Yeah, my general feeling is if if I go to a concert uh, and it's an indoor concert, uh, I, I'm going to think about wearing a mask. But the idea strikes me that maybe during flu season it might not be a bad idea if, if more of us had the attitude of like, you know, I'm going to wear a mask just so we're not going to spread the flu around. Let's not even talk about coronavirus, but uh, with the flu around that, that could affect, you know, small children and uh, older adults, too. It, we see this in some countries that have this attitude of wearing masks in public. It's not really a yep. bad idea, is it? No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. And and I know, at least in in parts of like the San Gabriel Valley there, schools where uh, kids routinely wear uh, masks to school because of uh, when, when when smog levels are bad, air, when air quality is down, and that's true pretty much anywhere. And we wear them during, during fire seasons up here when we get a lot of stuff in the air. So I think it's, you know, I think that stuff's all good. Um, and I, I would hope that's a habit we'll, we'll adopt. That and washing our hands more frequently. I think washing hands has as much to do with the low flu season last year as anything. For those fully vaccinated who are still really afraid of, of going out and maybe catching, you know, one of these breakthrough cases, although we've mentioned, you know, the rates are, are exceedingly rare for that. But I want to go back to what you said earlier, that you're going to ditch the mask in a lot of spots unless you have to wear them. I think it's important to hear that from a doctor. So what is your life going to be like? Are you indoor dining right now? Because some people are still even afraid oh, yeah. to go and do that. Yeah, no, no, no. We're indoor dining and I can get a reservation. You know, we still have social distancing in the rest in the restaurant. So there's still... You know, still six feet between tables. So it's, I think, you know, once we get back up to capacity, I think it'd be a lot easier to get a seat, but get a reservation. But for right now, if I can get a reservation, I don't hesitate to dine indoors. In these uh, situations where you have countries that are more used to wearing masks, uh, do you know offhand, I mean, did, did the coronavirus take longer to take hold there because they were already wearing masks? It, it's not a universal practice in a lot of places, but it, it was, I think that may that may have helped quite a bit. So Hong Kong is a place where a lot of this has gone on. I just read a study from Hong Kong that was suggested that um, you know, most of the transmission went on in in houses when people took their masks off and in small social gatherings. Um, so yeah, I think it probably helped um, help them uh, in, in some ways. But there are other places, you know. So Korea's had some big super spreader events and stuff. Um, that were associated with, um, you know, entertainment and bars and things. So it's, I, I think it's still a ways, we're still a ways, it, it didn't help it, you know, it didn't make it go away, right? I think it, it tempered it somewhat. Who should still be masking? Obviously the unvaccinated. What about people who may have had their shots, but they're still immunocompromised or they're in a very high risk group, that kind of thing? Well, well people who are, it's, it's everyone who is not fully vaccinated, which means two weeks after a second dose. You should wear masks until that magic day dawns. And that's not a, you know, I, I'm saying it facetiously, but that's an actual, a pretty hard date two weeks after the, after the second dose. Um, people who've been vaccinated who are immunocompromised, who've had a solid organ transplantation, are being treated for cancer, 
something or from uh, some rheumatologic disease, like inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatoid arthritis. Depends on exactly what your what therapy you're on, but a lot of these therapies will um, are associated with the vaccines not working as well. Um, and in those cases, if you could weigh it into it, if you're somebody like that, I discuss it with my doctor, but also I'd be pretty cautious about wading into a big crowd of people who are potentially unvaccinated. I mean, that's where you can start seeing it's it's when you have a lot of transmission going on among a cluster of people who are unvaccinated and you walk somehow walk into the middle of it. That's when we'll see vaccine breakthroughs. And this new Delta variant uh, that's circulating is starting to circulate in the United States now, which is really taken off in England, um, seems to spread pretty, pretty quickly, more quickly than the past strains we've seen. So that's another reason to be a little bit more cautious if you're immunocompromised or there's some reason you think your vaccine might not have taken as well. Dr. George Rutherford at uh, UC San Francisco. Short break and then coming up, the pandemic might be coming to an end and that means one less excuse to avoid the uh, weight loss plan. All right, let's face it. A lot of us have put on some pounds during the pandemic. Being at home, not going anywhere, had people uh, eating a lot and uh, not walking or exercising. And then, you know, it was stressful, so you turned to the cookies. But now that we're getting back to normal, people are trying to lose those pounds. Not always easy. KYW's Carol McKenzie talked with Dr. Winifred Constable, who runs uh, Diet Weight Loss in Pennsylvania, about how you could best keep that weight off. There is no amount of weight that is impossible to lose. And I speak as a professional from experience. We had a patient last week that just hit her 170 pound mark of having lost weight. Wow! And the way we approach it is to take it in small portions and to work at 10 pounds at a time. I think that when you have that much amount of weight to lose, you really need professional guidance because it's a very complicated problem. It's completely doable and possible. You have to work with somebody who understands, first of all, how this all goes about being treated. Again, it's you work in small segments of 10 pounds at a time, and then you need to get a blood test to see what's going on internally in your body so that somebody can design a food program that is appropriate to how you metabolize food. And I think the biggest problem that people have is that they're constantly searching for answers. And there's just so many answers. It's really difficult to know which answer is the right one and which one is the right one for you. The other thing is, is that people are looking for instant answers. And I will tell you that in my view of the world, the bariatric surgery is not the answer. It does work immediately. And it does work for about five years. But if you look at the outcomes, eight, 10, 12 years down the road, you have a lot of damage that's left behind and many, many people gain most of the weight back. I want to touch on something you just said, which was Mm -hmm. 10 pounds at a time, because that leads into this next question. Uh, Someone asked for tactical tips in keeping her, his or herself motivated. 10-pound increments, but this person wants to know, to weigh or not weigh every day? Uh, should they keep track or log everything they eat? And and I'm wondering, you know, there are a lot of tracker apps out there, too. So what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? This is where we work in our program on a very individualized way, because I don't find that there's one answer that works for everybody. Now, again, there are big generic studies that show the following. Number one, Weighing yourself every day, it turns out statistically you are more successful. And tracking your food every day, statistically for most people, you will be more successful. However, 
I find that you really need to work with people individually. For some people, it creates such anxiety to weigh yourself every day that it just sabotages you. And for other people, the toll that it takes of, of logging every single thing that you write, eat and write da- writing it all down is just impossible. But what I tell my patients is if you do weigh yourself every day, think of it as you know, a temporary gain or weight loss. In other words, you have to hit a a target goal three times before it's real. So if you weigh 260 pounds and you get on the scale the next day and you're down to 255 pounds, you have to tell yourself that's not real. It's going to go back up. When you see that number three times, then it's real. And this, I think, really helps people because the tendency is that if you lose three, four, five pounds, You think, oh, I'm doing really well. I can eat a little bit more. And then your weight goes right back up. But if you tell yourself it takes three visits on three different days for your weight to come down before it's real, then you really start to move forward. So we have different techniques we use to help people. But I think the answer is, number one, find out what works best for you. There's not a one size fits all. Statistically, for most people, weighing every day is a good thing. And logging every day is a good thing. But if it doesn't work for you, it's the wrong answer. Number two, don't let the number on the scale sabotage you and get into your head emotionally because this is just going to slow you down. Tell yourself you have to see a number three times on the scale before it's real. And number three, you if you have that much weight to lose, you probably are not going to succeed on your own. If you want to try, give yourself a time limit, maybe a month, two months, but if you find you're not succeeding, it's time to reach out to, for professional help. You like your Starbucks exactly so. There is an ingredients shortage. Looks like the pandemic is to blame. Anna Nagurney is with us, University of Massachusetts Amherst Operations Management. And uh, Bryant Simon, professor at Temple University, author of Everything But the Coffee, learning about America from Starbucks. Rob and I asked Anna first about Starbucks not being immune to shortages that are impacting all kinds of different industries. Exactly. And that's what we're seeing now. And consumers are very, very upset. There's so many Starbucks fans uh, during the pandemic. This was a big treat for them. And when you can't get your syrup, you can't get your oat milk, uh, it's really, you know, it's affecting people. You can see it on social media. It's going viral. And there are many issues associated with this. And what is really surprising is uh, Starbucks has been investing in uh, risk management and trying to identify disruptions among their suppliers. So I think they should have been prepared better. But the problem is now when you think about these supply chains, you could have issues when it comes to you know sourcing the raw material. There could be issues associated with manufacturing, uh, even with packaging. And finally, distribution is extremely, extremely important. And there have been many of its suppliers have actually been affected by labor shortages. And if you can't get workers, you can't get the truckers, you're not going to get the you know ingredients delivered. And that's something really, really important. And that's something we've been studying, actually, the impact of labor and disruptions on labor in the pandemic, which are you know now affecting Starbucks in part. Yeah, and Bryant, uh, this is a question for you. You know, we're talking about shortages of things, and, and people are always afraid of, oh, we're going to run out of this. We're going to run out of that. But what we're seeing is the shortages caused by disruptions in supply chains. Or is our chain of getting stuff to market really that 
in danger because this pandemic seems to have really created a lot of these so-called quote-unquote shortages. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's hard to know exactly how endangered we are, but it, it, it's clear in little niches that crises are happening. I mean, I think many of us have probably read about all of the various factors that have led to the crunch for used cars, for instance. Um, and I think that Starbucks is just caught in this, right? It's caught in a, a kind of moment where they can't get what they want. I, I think we have to wait a while to find out if this is going to be long-term and whether this is really going to affect customers and they're going to leave the brand for somebody else. My, my guess is that they won't. I, I think that much of this will be worked out in time for brand loyalists to come back. Do, do they score points for telling me that this was happening rather than me going to the store and finding out? Because when I got on the app the other day, there was the first <laughs> warning right there. Hey, you're going to notice some stuff like oat milk is not here. Um, yeah, they probably do score some points. I mean, I don't know how many people... I mean, I wonder right now, I mean, Starbucks did pretty well. Its app served them well during the pandemic, and they recovered pretty quickly during the pandemic. I think this is a little bit of an in-store thing as well. As people are getting out, they want to go and kind of celebrate their getting out in all kinds of ways. And one of this is by getting their favorite beverages in-store and including having, you, you talked about the kind of elaborate drinks, but People kind of like to hear their name called at Starbucks and their drink with it. It gives them a sense of belonging. So I'm not sure this is an app thing so much as these are, this is a kind of retail therapy buy. You're buying your something for yourself that's kind of slightly more expensive, maybe a little illicit in terms of calories, and you're treating yourself. And, I, and, and so people want to do this in the store in many ways, and then they're disappointed when they can't get what they want. Also, you can show off how creative you are with your order. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm so <laughs> smart. I put all this stuff in my coffee. A uh, question to you, Anna. It, well, what can we learn from from this in the future? What kind of ways can we improve the infrastructure so that maybe these supply chain disruptions don't affect us as much the next time? I think we need more redundancy in terms of suppliers. I think that's really important so you can become more agile and respond to these kinds of disruptions. I also think that you need to support labor throughout the supply chain because without workers, nothing gets produced, nothing gets transported, and you need to pay them effectively as well. And I think that's what the pandemic has really shown us, the importance of labor you know, to all these different supply chains, whether it's our favorite you know, coffee drink or the computer chips or you know, uh, meat processing plants. It's very, very important to support our workers. Because without them, really, nothing happens. And that's the same thing with the baristas. And Starbucks does have some shortages of baristas, even in parts of the country. You know, it's different in different markets, okay, what they're actually having shortages of. But, again, you think about, you know, these big networks tying all these different uh, Starbucks uh, retail outlets together. And if something goes wrong in terms of a freight link or a manufacturing link or a supplier, it can propagate throughout the network. So you need to be tracking these things. It's very, very important. So, Brian, you, you think you think that that catches on? You think these big companies, Starbucks or whatever it is, actually remembers this in six months' time? If all this gets ironed out, they say, oh, pandemic's over, supply chain looks fine to me. I don't need to do all that. Yeah, I think they will do whatever they can, um, as Anna said, to shore up their supply chain. But, but I actually think, you know, for Starbucks, there might be um, a silver lining here. 
if people are complaining on social media they can't get their favorite ice peach green tea lemonade i think that will get people running to the stores to get that drink um and in a sense there's a way in which this could help create demand for starbucks that our drinks are so valuable that people are you know out of sorts not being able to get them and it's in a funny way creating a buzz for them that they might not have had with these drinks some people just like carrying that cup around, yeah. I think, right? I I'm thirsty it. now, too, just and like, I, I really want to go to Starbucks after this. Just black coffee. That's all I know. You want something? No, just coffee. Anyways, thanks, Brian Simon, history professor, Temple University, author of Everything But the Coffee, Learning About America from Starbucks, Anna Nagurney, University of Massachusetts, Amherst Operations Management Professor. In Denmark, researchers using virtual reality to encourage more COVID vaccinations, they're doing it through a game of maneuvering through a virus-infected crowd in a city square. People playing the game, they wear goggles to play an elderly person crossing the square while avoiding red-clothed bypassers, those are infected with COVID. Vaccinated characters dress in blue. One player said it was fun, even though he got infected in the game. You can find this Odyssey original at the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.